September 1st, 2019 in Dublin, Ireland. And we're going to try to figure out who we are. Is that a decent question? Who are we? There was this uh, scientist that was raising birds. I forget what kind of birds. Some kind of crane. And one of the birds hatched when the mother bird wasn't around. And the way a lot of birds are programmed by instinct is that they follow the first large moving object that they see. So this one little baby bird followed the researcher. And the bird decided that it was a person instead of a bird. So it wanted to come into the researcher's house. Uh, it tried to have the researcher's wife or its mate, which was slightly inconvenient. And it basically just couldn't understand that it was a bird. It had the wrong identity. It didn't do very well in its bird life. So often we think that we're something that we're not. One of the first things that Krishna teaches in the Bhagavad Gita is that we are not this body or this mind. He says, Dehinos menyata dehe komaram yovanam dura tata dehantara praptir dearest tatra this body is going through all kinds of changes, right? We were all little babies at one time. And our body is not just like a bigger baby body. And if we took our baby pictures, even for the children here, if you took everybody's infant pictures and put them on the wall and we had a contest match the baby pictures we couldn't do it or you look at pictures of your grandparents at their wedding you know and you're like who are those people so even in this life the body's changing but we have a sense of continuous identity and Krishna says the things that happen to the body to get burned, to get cut, to get dried up. Those things don't happen to the soul. They don't happen to the self. That the real self, that continuing sense of identity, is very different from the changing body. The problem is that if we think that we're the body, when we're actually not the body, then we're going to make decisions in life that are not based on reality. So what's our evidence that we're different from the body? You know, Krishna says so, but we might say, well, I'm not sure if I believe that. So as I said, our first bit of evidence is that our body is changing radically so, unrecognizably so. There was a photograph in our Hare Krishna magazine, Back to Godhead, that was taken when I was 25, a group picture. And sometimes I've shown it to people and they've said, where are you in that picture? Right? So our body's changing to the point that it's unrecognizable. Our mental state has changed, I hope, since we were babies. 
and yet we have this continuing sense of identity. So that's one very strong evidence. Another very strong evidence is that we are aware of our existence. Just matter is not aware of its existence. This microphone isn't aware that it exists. Even a computer is not aware that it exists. So we have an awareness that we exist. We have uh, consciousness, which cannot be explained by the body. There hasn't been any medical doctor or scientist that have been able to take the components of the body and explain consciousness. If you take everything that makes up the body, that's not very difficult, you know, like Dr. Frankenstein did, and you put it together, you will not get consciousness, unlike the Frankenstein story. You can put together, you know, hair and skin and bones and everything. You will not get consciousness. And then at death, how many of you have seen some a person or an animal die? Actually, been there when they die. Any of you seen that? So you know when when someone dies, the moment before death, the moment after death, the body is basically the same. I mean, after some time, the body starts to disintegrate. But five minutes before death, five minutes after death, it's it's the same. But you can say the person's not there. That's a very strong evidence. You know, when my mother was alive, I could call her on the phone. Hi, Mom, how are you doing? This happened, that happened. And after she died, I couldn't call her on the phone. If we had taken the body and preserved it, you know, in formaldehyde or something, I couldn't talk to the body even though everything is there. So there's some identity, there's some person that is different from the body. And then we have so many empirically verified examples of people who have experiences out of their body. This incident has become a big subject of scientific research. And many of these examples are very, very well documented empirically. You know, someone will be in a hospital, they'll be on the operating table, heart line goes flat, brain line goes flat. Sometimes 10, 15 minutes, they're declared dead, the doctor's up there, this person has died. They come back to their body and they say, during that time that I was dead, I was on the ceiling watching you. And they can give sometimes very firm evidence. I'll say, you know, on the ceiling, on top of the light fixture, there's a sticker, and it says this and this. And how could the person on the operating table know that there's a sticker that says this and this at the top of the light bulb with the ceiling? Or they say, I went into another room in the hospital, and I saw this and this. And they're able to verify that the person was there even though the body was dead. And there are thousands and thousands of such cases. I I personally know people who've had these experiences. 
where the body was dead, they left their body, and they came back to their body. And then there's also many cases of people remember former lives before their birth. And again, there's medical researchers, scientific researchers, thousands of such cases of spontaneous recollection of previous lives, many of which they explore, they say, I remember I had this name, I lived in this place, I did this thing. And the, the child would have no way of knowing and the scientific researchers go and they find, yes, there was this place, there was this person, this is how they died. And they're able to verify all of these memories. You know, and we might say, well, one case, okay, some, we could give another explanation. But when you start having thousands of cases like this, it gets to the point that if you throw out the most obvious explanation, you'd have to throw out all kinds of scientific research and all kinds of human testimony. And then at a subjective level, all of us have desires that are impossible to fulfill on the basis of a body. All of us would like to be happy in an unlimited way. Does anyone here want to suffer? We all want to be happy and we, we want a happiness that is full of variety, that goes on forever that is always expanding, it's always new. Can you get that in a body? Does a body do that? Does, is a body capable of that kind of happiness? A body is capable of brief periods of happiness. Brief and temporary. And usually with some kind of payment. Yeah? Our bodily happiness we have to pay for. You want to eat... You've got to grow food or pay someone else to grow it, right? You've got to shop or you've got to harvest, you've got to prepare it, you've got to clean up afterwards. The t all that time is a lot more time than the eating, isn't it? I'm sure, you know, some of us have probably spent four hours, five hours, six hours in the kitchen to prepare a meal that everybody finished in 20 minutes, and all of our bodily happiness is like that. You know, sexual happiness, you've got to find a person and you've got to woo them and you've got to convince them that they want to be with you. And then if you're civilized, you marry them and you spend a lot of money probably on the wedding. And then you have to deal with them every day. They have to deal with you every day, of course, as well. And so, you know, you get these moments of happiness, but it's surrounded by all of this difficulty and, and sacrifice. But that's not what we want. You know, we have, we have this kind of fantasy that we're going to be able to have this just, you know, happily ever after and happiness and excitement. And So why, if all we were was the body, why would we, all, all of us, every single human being, and to whatever extent we can research it, even among the animals, have this desire for unlimited expanding happiness that the body is incapable of doing if all we were was the body. If we were the body, if this was our identity, we'd be satisfied with bodily happiness because that would be who we are. 
Why do we all want to live forever as youthful, happy, healthy people? You know, we may welcome death if we're crippled by terrible diseases of old age. Or if, you know, our life is a mess, we might think, oh, better to die. But, the, you know, the person standing on the ledge ready to jump, if you say, hey, I can fix all your problems, they wouldn't want to die. We want an eternal, youthful, healthy life. Can the body do that? No. Where does this desire come from if we are simply the body? You know, there's creatures that live in the desert that have no desire for water. They get all their water from the food that they eat. They never drink water directly. Or what to speak of the aquatics. They live in the water, but they don't, they're not thirsty. But if I go in the water, I'll feel thirsty. If I go in the ocean, if I go scuba diving in the ocean, I'll feel thirsty. If I go to a desert, I'll feel thirsty. Because I'm a creature that's designed to drink water. So we have desires that indicate our origin. They indicate our true nature. They give us a very strong evidence that we're not simply this body. So what are we? So Krishna says, Mamai Vamso Jiva Loke Jiva Bhuta Sanatana. That we are part of God. Not just that we're not the body, but we're part of God. We're a divine being. And when we're part of God in this kind of really magical, mystical way that we say in Sanskrit, we call it Achincha Beta Beta Tattva, which was taught by, if you see the figure the deity of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu there in the center. So he taught this philosophy, Achincha Beta Beta Tattva. Achincha means beyond material understanding. Beta Beta means oneness and difference and Tattva means the truth. We are part of God in the sense that we are fully one with Him and yet we are fully a separate individual. We're not part of Him the way this tile is part of the floor, for example that if you took out one of the tiles, the floor would be incomplete. It's not like that. But we are fully complete. Krishna is fully complete. We are part of Him in in this amazing way where we're fully one with Him and yet we're fully different from Him at the same time. And therefore, we have the qualities of God in a minute degree. Just like each of the cells of our body, it has the basic template of the body. But yet each cell is very small. And you could say, here's my body, or you could say, here's my fingers, or something like that. So we're a part of God, we're a spiritual being. And although on one level we are one with God, we have the same qualities as God, the same nature as God, yet we each have our own individual opinions, likes, dislikes, nature, not just in terms of this life and this body, but in our original form. In our original spiritual form, we have a personality, we have likes and dislikes, we have opinions, we have things that we particularly like to do and things that we don't particularly like. 
here in this body, the things that we like and our opinions are very much shaped by our experiences in this life, by the particular kind of body and family and country that we have. When we realize our real nature, we realize our own likes and opinions that have nothing to do with these temporary external things. And our nature is that we are eternal, not only without end, but also without beginning. And again, we have kind of a sense of that. We have kind of a sense that we've always existed and that we're never going to stop existing. Not only do we not want to die, we kind of have a sense that we're not going to, isn't it? We all have this sort of sense that I'm, I'm not going to die. Even if, you know, you get to be my age and you've got a friend dying every week, still you think, no, I'm not going to die. Why? Because we, the soul, we, we don't die. We've never come into being, we never stop existing. We're always who we are. And our nature is to be full of ever-expanding pleasure. Ever-expanding variety of pleasure. And our nature is also to have an innate, natural understanding and wisdom. In the body, we're born in ignorance. We have to go through so many years of education had so much difficulty memorizing so many things and taking exams with so much anxiety. And then the world changes and a lot of the things we need to know we didn't learn in school. Right? But our ultimate nature is not like that. Just naturally, we have this natural, intuitive understanding we know reality and how things work and how they fit together and exactly what to do and what not to do and how to do anything. And we also have a free will. We are free beings. In this world, there's so many movements for freedom. Now, in this world, there's always some people who have more money, more status, more physical power, more military power, more knowledge, more influence, and the people who have less are always clamoring for freedom. They're always clamoring for equality and freedom. But in our original nature, we're completely free. We're not completely free in this body, even if all the equality and freedom movements were to be successful. We're still very constrained by nature and by our body and our mind. We're very limited. But our real nature as a soul is to be completely free. That we can basically do whatever we want. We can act according to any of our desires, which can be fulfilled simply by our willingness. And our original nature is that we serve. That we get our greatest happiness through serving. We see some indication of that even when we're exhibiting our nature through a body and mind. That we're always serving something. First of all, we're serving the body. I have to feed the thing and put it to bed and wash it and clothe it. Yeah? I have to protect it from disease and insects and thieves. Yes? 
Does everybody here spend a lot of their days serving their body? We, we call going to the toilet the call of nature. Come here! Yes, sir. Right? We're servants of the body. Sorry, it's a, it is embarrassing, isn't it? I mean, how much of our day, how many hours of our day are we spending? You know, the body says, give me water. Yes, yes, okay. Here you go. Here's your water. Give me right up. Is that okay, Master? No, give me more. Okay. Is that enough? Yes, that's enough. We're doing this all day long, isn't it? And then we're serving our family. Our children, give me this, give me that. Our spouse, our parents, our country. We've decided that that place is the enemy. Come and be willing to lop off your right arm in service of your country. Yes, sir. We're serving our employers. We're serving our customers. Maybe we're serving our animals and pets. You know, when, when Srila Prabhupada came out of... When he left India, people didn't have pet dogs in India at that time. And he came to America, and he was so astonished to see, you know, men wearing suits and ties, taking their dogs and standing there while the dog did their business. I think he would be even more surprised today now seeing that they clean up after the dog. He said, some big man, and he's standing there as a servant of the dog. The dog's janitor. So we're serving. And this is our nature as a spiritual being to serve. But then our spiritual nature is not to serve this, this body, but to serve God. Through a loving relationship, not some forced thing. In this world, although we're constantly serving, we don't like it. I haven't met any parents who tell their children, I want you to be a servant when you grow up. You know, we're trying to eliminate servants from modern society with our machines. But in our real nature, service is very sweet. So this is our real identity. We're a part of God. We're full of eternity, knowledge, and bliss. We're individual. We're free. And we take great pleasure in serving. So what is our relationship with this body? Well, the body itself is actually kind of disgusting. You know, if you took all the elements of the body, you know, even the parts we really like, like our hair, you know, if you just see like a bunch of hair on the floor, it's kind of like, Ugh. Or our eyes. You just see some eyeballs. It'd be... I mean, what, what parts of the body, if you just like saw it, what would be attractive? So we think the body is attractive because we the soul are in it. it it's really the soul that's making it. It's we, the person, who are making the body seem attractive. It's the spirit that's attractive. The body in and of itself is not attractive. And it's we, the soul, the spirit, that, that, that create everything. Matter doesn't create anything of its own accord. It just kind of sits there and disintegrates and rots. But we're what's creating all the beauty, 
the wonder, the order, everything like that. We're, the, we're actually the movers and shakers in the world, not matter itself. And we're a, we rent the body. The owner of the body is not ourselves. The owner of the body is God. And the evidence for that is that he can take any function or any part or the whole thing at any time without notice or permission. If something's mine and you're using it, I can take it away without your permission. Uh, without notice, I can lend you my car and just say, now I want it back. And Krishna can do that, right? Can we lose any part of our body or the whole body at any moment without notice? Sure we can. All you have to do is fall down the stairs. Get hit by a car. Get a disease. Any of our functions, our knowledge, we can lose our knowledge in just a moment. Just have to get your head hit by a car. And then everything we've learned in life is just could just can be taken away. We can does, nobody asks us. We don't necessarily get a notice. Excuse me, may I take away everything you learned? Is that right with you? So we know that I'm not the owner. I'm just a tenant. God is the owner. Krishna says, Kshetra Jamtabi Mambadi Sarvik Jaitri Shibarita. Jaitri Kshetra Gayorganam Yatajganam Atamala. He says, You're in the body, you know the body, but I'm there too, and I know the body too, because Krishna is the owner. You can say, Excuse me, I'd like to use your body for fertilizer now. Huh? And uh, therefore, if we want to think about what is a successful life? What is a successful life? So I think in modern society, what are we told is a successful life? Make money, right? Get up money. High status career. Something that you're proud to tell other people that you do. Right? I'm an IT engineer. I'm a medical doctor. So that's part of successful life. A lot of money, a career that you're, you can brag about. Nice place to live. Preferably a really big house. Lots of rooms. Luxury car, or maybe two. An attractive romantic partner. Again, that you can show off to your friends. Look at what a nice romantic partner I have. Wouldn't you like that for yours? Yeah, but you would. Attractive, intelligent children. Who go to the best schools and get high-status jobs, a flat-screen TV in every room, probably a dog, that you've done something to contribute to society, maybe you've given charity to help fight malaria, or you've helped build a hospital. So that's a successful life. Am I right? Did I get that right? Did I, did I get that? I mean, if you want to add to it, maybe you could be a little famous. You know, not so famous that you have to hide yourself all the time. Isn't that funny? How very famous people end up liking to go incognito? Just think about that for a minute. It's rather ironic. But the more famous you are, the more inclined you are to go out so people don't recognize you. So anyway, not quite that famous, but probably a little bit famous, maybe getting history books. Did, did I get that right? Yeah? Okay. 
Now, we all know that a lot of the people who have all that are not happy. Don't we all know that? Isn't this just common knowledge? Just look at the headlines of the news. Every day in the headlines, you'll see at least one person who has all that in life and is not happy. Am I correct? Right? They're getting divorced or they're addicted to drugs or something like that. Yeah? And we all know people who don't have any of that and they're happy. Am I correct? So all of us in our personal lives, we're aware of some people who have all those things and are not happy and some people who don't have any of those things. They don't have a lot of cash. They're a really humble job. Their romantic partner is kind of funny looking. Their kids are average. They have an average looking house. They don't have any flat screen TVs. They don't have a dog. And they're happy. So we know there's not a one-to-one correspondence between that idea of a successful life and happiness. Why? Because that idea of a successful life is all based around the body. It's not based around the real self. So if we can understand, at least on some level, that I'm not this body, I'm, I'm a spiritual being, then I would redefine success. What then would be success? And it's so simple. The definition we just gave of success is complicated. It's pretty hard to achieve it unless you've got some money in the first place and some status in the first place, isn't it? It's hard to make a lot of money and have a high-status job and a fancy house and a gorgeous romantic partner if you come from a family that's not educated and poor. Isn't that true? You've got to kind of start off. You've got to start off on a high level, generally, statistically speaking, and then you've got to work really, really hard, and then you might fail. But to become successful based on the understanding that I'm a spiritual being... Then I understand my success already exists. My success is inherent to me. It's not something to be achieved by working hard or by having a family that's already two steps up, knowing the right people, slaving until 2 o'clock in the morning writing papers, or staying at the office until 2 o'clock in the morning and never even seeing those kids that I show off to everybody. It, It doesn't need any of that. It's already there. All I have to do to have a successful life is to realize what I already have. To realize what's already there. Have you ever wanted something and maybe even bought it and then found out that you already had one of them? Has that ever happened to any of you? You know, after you buy the thing, you look, oh my God, I already have one of these. It was right in my drawer. I didn't realize I had it. Our success is already there. We're already perfect. We're already part of God. It's not, it's not something to achieve. It's not something to develop. It's just something to accept. say okay but you do seem to have a process and it does seem to involve some hard work 
spend some time. Yeah, it doesn't need to actually. The only thing one has to do to realize the success that's already there, this is going to sound really, really funny and, and kind of ridiculous, is just simply to let go of the things that are causing us pain. That's all. What's causing us pain? Thinking, I'm going to be a big person in the world and I'm going to control the world and I'm going to get this and that in the world and I am so great and wonderful in terms of my body and mind. I am perfect, I am powerful and happy and I'm going to enjoy the world. That person is my enemy and that person is my friend. So if I treat my friend nicely and I'm careful with my enemy and if I get more of this and more of that, that's what's making us miserable. What am I going to do if I lose this? And how am I going to get that? Ooh, this thing might happen and that thing might happen. And oh, there might be this problem. And all of our fears, our greed, our envy, our selfishness, all of which only causes distress, causes to identify with this world, and causes to look for success in ways that we know, if we think about it for about two minutes, are no guarantees of success at all. And all we have to do is let go of those things. That's it. Because we are already who we are and our success is already there. So in Bhakti Yoga, we have a very interesting way of letting go of all of those things. It's a way that if done right, it's called Kevalanandakanda. It's only happiness. If it's done right, which, which is a caveat, because it isn't always done right. But if it's done right, and that is, this is also going to sound really funny, we fall in love with our ultimate self. Krishna is called the Paramatma, the super self, the self of the self. It's explained in our uh, sacred writing, the Srimad Bhagavatam, that everybody ultimately loves themselves. We may love our country, our family, or whatever, but we ultimately we love ourselves. And that Krishna, being the self of the self, the super self, the super soul, ultimately we love Krishna. When we really love Krishna, in that love for Krishna, in order to experience that love for Krishna, we can't hold on to those things. There are impediments in that love. I knew a, a married couple where the husband had asthma. Eventually he died of it. And at one point he was hospitalized, one of the many points where he came close to death. And the doctor said, are there any animals in your house? He said, yes, we have a cat. And the doctor's, uh, he said, whose cat is it? He says, my wife's cat. The doctor said to the wife, it's either your husband or your cat. She said, I'll take the cat. These were good personal friends of mine. Anyway, he left. If we really love someone, in order to show our love for that person, 
there are things we may give up. Isn't that the way it works? Whether you're loving someone romantically, or you're loving your children, or you love your friends, or you love your parents, whoever we love, naturally, if we actually love them, we will willingly, happily sacrifice things for the sake of that relationship. And if we actually love them, we count those sacrifices as a pleasure. Am I, am I correct in this assessment? Like if we love somebody, we may spend money that we've earned with hard labor to buy something just for them. We may spend our time making a surprise party for them at great difficulty to ourselves. It's just natural. So when I really love Krishna, I naturally want to sacrifice the things that come between me and Krishna, which is pride, lust, envy, greed, fear. So even if I'm not willing to give up those things because they're bothering me and they're causing me suffering and they're keeping me from my ultimate success, even if I can't be motivated like that, just like many of us know, well, I should exercise more, I should eat more healthy, and if I do that, I'd feel better, but we're not motivated enough to do it, isn't it? I'm sure we all have things that we know, hey, if I did this, it would be good for me. Yeah? We all know that. Everybody has stuff like that? Something that, you know, if I did this, it'd be good for me, I'd be happier, it would improve my quality of life, and when it comes to doing it, like, yeah. those very same things to do them because we love somebody then we may do them so bhakti yoga is we give up all this nasty painful stuff out of love for Krishna and what we ultimately come to understand is loving Krishna means loving our real self as Krishna says then we relish and rejoice in the self and we come, as Srila Prabhupada would say, to our real self-interest. And then we experience success in life that is independent of our external circumstances. We feel happy and fulfilled regardless of whether externally we're rich or poor, or sick or in health, whether we have lots of friends or the world hates us, whether we have a gorgeous place or we live in a closet, it just doesn't matter. Because we realize that nothing in this world has anything to do with us at all. So what Srila Prabhupada is offering in this Krishna consciousness movement, if we want to take it up, is a total way of life where everything we're doing, even the care of the body, even working at a job, even taking care of a family, everything can be done in a spirit of love for Krishna. Everything. Every moment of the day. And we can experience this success in a happy way in this life. And if we don't want to take up that process entirely, what's very beautiful is we can take it up to whatever extent we're willing to take it up. This isn't an all or nothing proposition. So, so many religious, spiritual groups in the world, they'll say, this is it, this life is it, 
You have to follow what we're teaching you exactly the way we're teaching you and you've got to do it now or you're going to suffer for all eternity. This is your only chance. Hurry up. So that's not our philosophy. Our philosophy is even swalpa, even a little bit, even a little bit of taking to the spiritual path. To whatever extent you take to the spiritual path. To whatever extent one takes to the spiritual path, to that extent one will feel authentic satisfaction and success in life. It's something very tangible. So even if you take it up to some extent, there's no loss. And if you take it, if we take it up fully, then there is full success. So this is the thing to ask ourselves. Which model of identity and success am I putting my energy into? Am I putting my energy into a model of identity and success that I know is false? If so, why? Why not put my energy and my time into a model of identity and success which I know is true. Even if I don't know absolutely for sure that it's true, if there's even a possibility that it's true, and I know the other is false, why not go for something that has at least a possibility of being true, rather than going for something that I know for certain is false? So questions, comments, additions, subtractions... There was a news article recently <coughs> published where one TV producer's son from Australia, who was four years old, has been already last two years telling to, to the parents and everyone else that in, in his last life he was Princess Diana. Really? Yeah. Uh, maybe you were aware. No, I didn't so know. That, that. No, uh, interesting. Yeah. And then they researched what the kid was telling about uh, places and people, and it was all matching. Fascinating. And that the father of the child is actually a friend of the devotees. Oh, really? That, that particular producer, he's actually a bit of a devotee. Interesting. Interestingly enough. That is very interesting. There, there's, there's many very well-researched and documented cases of children spontaneously remembering previous lives. I mean, many, many. And... You know, some of the cases may be a little dodgy, but there's there's enough cases that are so solid that it's, it becomes very difficult to dismiss all of them. You know, you could dismiss one or two. We start having thousands of cases. And a lot of them, the families don't believe in reincarnation. A lot of them, you know, they're very shocked. And, and they finally kind of research it, and they're like, wow. So, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. Thank you for that. Anybody else? And they investigated that and found that everything was true. 
everything matched. Yeah, yeah. There are actually thousands of cases like this. Yes. Uh huh. She experienced that, and that her soul uh, was on the ceiling, and she was able to see everything that they were doing, and they were trying to resuscitate her, and eventually, but something in her mind was trying to get the soul back into her body. Uh huh. She said she was fighting hard. That, that's what she remembered. That she was fighting hard to get the soul back, and she still did. Interesting. So your wife actually had one of these near-death experiences. Yes. So again, there's thousands of very well-documented cases where there just isn't any other explanation other than that this actually happens. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. himself spent about three or four hours every day just taking care of the bodily health with exercise and massage. And the question is, what's the mentality? That this is me and this is the source of my happiness? Or that this is the energy of Krishna that I'm meant to take care of as a service? So, you know, if, if you could see Krishna directly in front of you and he said to you, Here, here's something I'd like you to take care of, to use for me, how nicely would you take care of it? I mean, even, you know, in this world, if, if some friend of yours said, I'm going overseas, would you take care of my car for me while I'm gone? You would take care of it. You know, even a car, if you don't run it periodically, it starts to rust. Yeah, everybody knows that? You would take care of it because you love your friend. I'm not talking about it's our duty, it's our loving exchange. It's, it's, duty's okay. <clears throat> but let, let's go a little beyond that. It's an expression of love to Krishna to take care of this. It's his. And it doesn't have to be either or, you know, while you're exercising, listen to a spiritual lecture or an audio book. Listen to a kirtan. I mean, we're very lucky that we can understand English. All of Srila Prabhupada's books are in audio book form in English. That's not true for the non-English speaking world. So you can get all of Srila Prabhupada's books as audio books and a lot of the books of our acharyas as audio books. And, and I listen to that every day. So I, you know, I read the books myself but then I also listen to audio books and then there's Prabhupada's lectures 
lectures by so many other devotees. So while you're exercising and doing yoga, you can also be hearing. It's, it's not, a, it's not a, an either or, but it, it can be an and. Is that all right? Anybody else? So I'd like us to think right now of, is there something I could do, so today's Sunday, so something I could do between now and next Sunday that could increase the quantity, quality, or both of something I'm doing for my real spiritual success. So if I'm not doing anything right now, what's there something I could add? Maybe I could chant the Hare Krishna mantra for a minute a day or five minutes or read a little bit of the, read one verse in Bhagavad Gita a day or set up a little sacred space in my house. And if we're already doing something, is there some way we could increase the quality? Maybe take some prayers or verses we're already saying and try to say them with more meditation. Maybe we could also increase the quantity of something we're doing. If we're reading for a half an hour a day, maybe we could read for 45 minutes. So is there something that we could do? And please pick something that, that you're actually likely to do. So if we make a goal that's too big or too fantastic, then we don't tend to do it at all. So if you just think for a minute, what's something I could actually do in the next week? Give you something again, very simple. Taking something we're already doing and doing it more meditatively. And just for a week. If you want, if you want to do it after that, we can do more. Okay, now if it's really personal. That's fine, but if it's, if it's not super personal, if you could turn to someone next to you and tell them what you're going to do. Because if we tell somebody, we're more likely to do it. If it's super personal, you don't have to say it to anybody, but if it's not super personal, turn to someone next to you and tell them what you're going to do. Thank you very much. And thank you for your hospitality here in Dublin. Hopefully I'll be able to come again sometime. Hare Krishna, Shri Prabhupada Ki Jai.